Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff, and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. Today on the podcast, we have Kyle Sammons. Kyle is an assistant strength and conditioning coach and the sports science coordinator for the Arizona Cardinals. He just got done with his first season in the NFL after spending time with Strive Technology and previously at the University of Washington. Kyle is our first repeat guest on the show. Previously, he joined us for the seventh episode of MTN. In that episode, we talked quite extensively about his Beast Factory and how that system came to be. We do talk a bit about it in this episode as well, but if you want to do a more in-depth dive with that return to play framework, head on over to episode seven. We were super grateful that Kyle came back on since there were so many different things that we wanted to touch on in his first episode, we just never really got around to. Our conversation today is wider engine from tissue mechanics, motor learning, deceleration, and overall striving to, in Kyle's words, make humans more durable. As always, enjoy the episode. Before when we talked, you were not with the Arizona Cardinals. Now you spent mm-hmm. a year in the NFL. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Um, and I think it's also interesting because uh, you've also worked in the collegiate setting to kind of compare and contrast the two from like a training perspective, from a resources perspective, from managing relationships perspective. So just talk about your first year, your experience and and how it went. And also to add to that real quick, Kyle, because you were, you were in, uh, you were working like the tech private sector before, right? Right before yeah. Yeah. were you adjusting to not coaching, right? Cause you went from coaching to tech private, not coaching to now coaching again, being a part of a team. So all of that kind of included. All right. Let's unpack this a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, going from college to, to a year in tech to the NFL, I think it's been actually a pretty good progression and like being integrated back into a team setting. And the reason I say that is because at college, you have so much time to work with the guys and to train them almost to a fault. I think college, you almost have too much time. And what I mean by that is you actually almost get like bored and you're trying to find ways to like, progress, regress, lateralize, whatever it might be. So I think your exposure to injury goes a lot higher in college. Now you can build a bigger base as they call it. And so I I said this yesterday, I think going from that to the NFL, the NFL, you have just enough time to damage guys, if you want to call it that. Um, So I think I like this setting probably better than college, just because you're condensed. You have to be more precise it's more of like you're a sniper versus like I'm taking, you know, a shotgun approach to everything. Um, you have to be more detailed. So I, I like that a lot. Our players ask questions. Um, college, it's more like a dictatorship. So this is more like you're leading these guys. They're trusting you. You're building relationships. Once you build relationships with these guys, it is probably a lot better. They'll do anything for you. And so I think there's stigmas out there about the NFL and about professional sports. I can just speak about you know, my experience and 
that's been great. It's been really, really good. Um, yeah, you have to build relationships with guys, but that's business, you know, that's anywhere in the world. So I like that a lot better. I think kind of backtracking a little bit, I think the tech sector actually helped me become a better coach. Um, and Hunter, I, I probably say this to nauseam, but I think professional, or I should say um, strength conditioning coaches, we need to understand tissue mechanics better. Um, and what do I mean by that is understanding how the muscle, the tendon, the extracellular matrix all work to pull on bones to accomplish tasks. That my previous job allowed me to do that because I was looking at muscles through surface EMG, but then we were also looking at accelerations. So we were getting hypothetical kinetic and kinematic data, but also looking at internal workings of muscles. So you're looking at brain to muscle connections. Um, you're looking from when the foot strikes the ground, what happens when you're sprinting, change directions. So it actually made me a better coach. Um, so I would say like college was great to groom me. Um, I made a lot of errors there. It was great though. Um, and then you go to the, you know, the, the private world, which is business slash wearable tech. I was still interacting with high profile clients. It was just more one-off or strength coaches or performance coaches. And then I come to the Cardinals and it's even more refined and it's a smaller sample size now from college. So you're going from 120 down to 90, down to 56, whatever it might be. So you're whittling down your sample sizes. You're getting more diligent. You are having to find probably or refine a better process. Yeah. One thing that I realized last year being with the Kings was like the efficiency you have to have in training athletes is so much more vital because when you're in collegiate space, as you alluded to, like you have so much time, you can write mm -hmm. anything you want in a program, however many days, especially in the off season. But whenever you're working in the professional setting, you have such finite time to actually train individuals that like people talk about programming and like, oh, well, eventually once you get further in your career, you remove so much fluff and you realize how much fluff's in your program work in the professional setting. And that happens immediately because you're like, okay, I can't do this. I can't yep. do this. What do I, what can I do? Um, which I thought was helpful I, yeah, for to, me. For to sure. add to that point though, Hunter, like one of the things coming from private back to college for me that I had to adjust to the most was coaches wanting to feel like it's effective to use as much time as possible. Yeah, for sure. And then when I first came back and I was like, Hey, we can get this done in 50 minutes. We don't need 60 minutes. And they're like, now we have to use 60 minutes. I'm like, okay, well, you understand that if we use 60 minutes, then we're just picking stuff up. I mean, we're, I, do. we're just adding I, fluff. You know? I run into that now. Like, yeah, we want that. Yeah. Like we have a 20 minute in season lift for the high minute guys here. And some of the coaches, like they're done and the coaches come in thinking we're still going to be gone for 45, 50 right. minutes. They're like, they're done. Yeah, it was 20 minutes. How much more training do we need to do today? Um, yeah, so it's a great point. Uh, so we just had Elijah Mould on, on the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And we were asking him about the training uh, layout for the week that they have. Neither me and Mike have worked in the NFL. Um, and you're the first person I've ever known, like personally, that's worked in the NFL. So what does the week look like from a training perspective for you guys um, throughout the, the end season? And how do you go about like structuring training for the guys? It's no different than college, to be honest with you. So like what you might've experienced at Washington when Saha was in charge, like it's very similar to that. Um, you're picking and choosing kind of. The only thing that I saw was different is our big guys lift pre-practice, other guys lift after practice. 
Um, and I thought that was actually a really good way to do it. Um, I think people go into this trap where they think NFL athletes are really, really, really um, refined and progressed along the training continuum. That's not true. Um, what you need in college, what you need in high school is what you need for these NFL guys. So with that being said, it's still pretty basic and we're chasing traits. It's not getting too over the top. We know it's a grown man game. You need force and you need force at certain times, either slow, fast. Um, and so that's where I think maintaining resiliency is through making sure soft tissue can yank on bones to actually push against people or to sprint or to change directions. It's really no different, to be honest with you. So it's a three-day model. Well, I was just going to say one one thing kind of in that training realm is one thing that Elijah actually brought up, which I thought was cool that um, the coaching staff there like actually communicate to them. And this might be, I haven't worked in football in a little while, but um, he was talking about how throughout the week, they have to hit 90% of their max speed at some point. And he said that they usually just do it through a drill. Um, do you guys have speed sessions or parameters or things like that that you want guys to hit throughout the week that you're actually looking at with gps yeah we're looking at speed thresholds essentially weekly so seven to ten days are they hitting above 90 percent max v um and my boss he's really the one driving that and he's in the meetings so that's where it's like anything that we've heard on podcasts right like you got to hit X amount of speed uh, a week. And if you don't, what we do is what you just mentioned. It's through practice. It's not through top offs or after practice. So do you communicate with the guys like, hey, extend this play out a little bit further today? Or if you're running a go route, like even if you don't touch it, hit a – or do you guys just naturally do that? Our director of performance, the way we structure practice is we have days where it's going to be max V days. And so if we see guys that aren't exerting on the max V days on another day in practice, their position coach is aware of what's going on and he will communicate to that player. So now it's like a top-down approach where everybody knows what's going on. It's not like sports science is running around saying run faster. It's everybody's in the know. Everybody knows what's going on. We have a plan in place and we do that repeatedly. Yeah. That's awesome. Go ahead, Mike. When you talk about tissue mechanics a little bit, and this is just like a question I'm thinking about as we're talking here, and you work in the NFL, you have a wide spectrum of ages, obviously. I mean, you could have a guy who's 20 years old. You could have a guy who's 35, 36, 37 years old. So in addition to you talk about programming and you talk about it will split up by position groups and whatnot, is there a thought to like the age difference in some guys? Like Aaron Rodgers, for example. I don't even know if this is actually true, but I thought I think I saw like pregame – before that game, he ruptures Achilles. He was doing resisted sprinting as part of his pregame uh, structure. And he had never done that before. And then he happened to rupture his Achilles that game. And that just seems like he's 38, 39 years old, whatever, whatever he is. Um, he's adding in that. And now he ruptures Achilles, whether that's because of it or not, who knows. But um, is there a thought to the, the age of certain athletes in terms of what their tissue is now at? Because obviously stuff changes, right? As you get older, so it's like, hey, we're at the defensive back plus 30 bucket for these guys. We're the defensive back 28 and whatever it might be. Yeah, so I think 
That's a really good question because we talk about that. We do. And I think there is a research article out there. I don't know which one it is, but when you hit 25 years old, your collagen production starts to decline. And so you're actually getting in an area called collagen degradation is higher than collagen synthesis. So your net collagen is going in a trending in a way where you're actually like, I would hypothetically say like deteriorating. And so you can re, uh, re-engineer that with supplementation, exercises to try and make sure that you are attacking the collagen with the muscle so you can prevent these injuries. And I think, yes, age does play into that. And as I'm sitting here and we had this, you know, in Vegas at this conference, there's a few guys I was talking with, this was a topic um, about age and how would you bucket these guys? Not real sure yet. Um, but yeah, there's definitely older guys. As you get older, you start to get stiffer in your tendons. They become more brittle. So what that means is the stress strain cycle is getting actually in an area where you're getting more stiff with the tendons. So then the muscle, if it's stronger than the tendon, it's going to blow that thing apart. Um, so that's where you need to make sure the muscle and the tendon are still engineered to do their task and their job. So that goes into isos and eccentrics. That's the beast factory to a T and that's why I do it. Um, and I think another thing that people need to start getting into is motor learning and understanding Carl Newell's model and Nikolai Bernstein's model. And when we give a task to somebody, they might achieve that task, but how are they doing it internally is very different. And that's where the previous job I had, I could do that. Hey, do this. Whoa. This dude is using more right hamstring, uh, left glute. Like that's not what we want. We got to make sure that, you know, when the brain fires, it's working down an actual chain and getting feedback from the ground up and it can do that repeatedly. So I know it's one of the questions probably down the, the list of 10 questions we had, but I think that's a really good, like interesting topic is, I mean, Newell's model is you have an individual, you have a task and you have the environment, which kind of is coordination, right? So we need to understand like, how can we engineer these drills to achieve that? So we're not just doing drill roulette where it's like, spin the wheel, let's do this today. Ah, oh, cool. That's great. What is the outcome we're chasing? What's the trait we're chasing and why? Have you, have you been able to use a technology like Strive with the Cardinals to do something like you're talking about? Not yet. We have Surface EMG, but not through Strive. We've done it with like one-off cases, but kind of like backtracking a little bit. We had a lot of tech early on and what we're trying to do is refine. Like um, tech isn't going to answer questions unless we have the right question that's going to answer. And so unless we're asking it, and I think it, all it's going to do is add a layer to coaching. Is this good, bad, and different? Are we achieving the task we want? You know, is this the outcome we want? Yes, no. So answer your question, no. We aren't using Strive at the moment, but I think there is a place for, you know, EMG as long as it can be done in a manner that's appropriate. So you touched on the Beast Factory, and we're obviously going to revisit that because I know we, we talked about it in the first episode. Um, so for the people that didn't hear the first episode or didn't listen, you should go back and listen, but just to make this simple, give a 30 second elevator pitch on what that means. What is the beast factory, how you structure it? I know there's a lot of depth to it. So 30 seconds is not doing it justice, but because it's in the first episode, I just want to rehash it real quick. Yeah. What it's doing is it's taking um ab hills model huxley's model and looking at a muscle fiber and then we're stacking joints so what it's going to be is isometric eccentric which are general terms fast eccentric and then dynamic and you're working through those phases and you keep stacking those blocks so it's not block training where you move through one phase go to the next phase it's actually you're adding components as you get going here so you're going from less degrees of freedom you're freezing degrees of freedom or joints to achieve a task in a muscle or a tendon 
Um, and then you're sliding down that scale and speeding up actual time. So you have no time constraint to a time constraint that affects tissue that affects tendons very differently. And so the first two phases is no time constraint going after the muscle and tendon and it's more conscious movement. And then the next two phases, fast eccentric dynamic, there's a time constraint and that's going more after the tendon where the muscle is not really making that much change in length. It's really having the elastic capacity to those tendons to do their work. So you're stacking these uh, principles within the same session. So you, you're going to do an yeah. isometric movement. You're going to do an eccentric movement. You're going to do a fast eccentric. You're going to do a dynamic movement. And these are all, these are all stacks. So then the question I wanted to get to was, what has your implementation looked like with the Cardinals and have you tweaked and changed and evolved the beast factory since being able to implement it in this setting for a year with your guys and having a staff that you've been now introducing this to, and I'm sure that they've had opinions and, and, and asked certain questions with it. Yeah. So I think it's been refined is the best way to put it. And so now what I'm doing is like, okay, I'm just seeing, when I work with athletes, um, what they need, and they all kind of need the same thing. And so that's traits. The traits they need are all the same. And so at this level, what I have seen, just my observation is these dudes are in the NFL because they're the master and the highest level compensators around. They'll achieve tasks. They'll do it freaking fast. They'll do it amazingly. However, we've seen injury rates. So why are these injury rates still pretty high? And I think it's because it's no one's fault. I think it's just the nature of the, the game. You have these giant humans. There's a lot more forces going through their limbs, but kind of backtracking a little bit. We aren't really sure like how these wirings are working internally because the nature of our field is looking at outputs. How high you jump? How fast do you run? So we aren't really understanding the kinematics. It's more the sorry, the kinetics, we're really understanding, we need to understand that better. We're looking at it from a kinematic lens too much. That's great. But I think we need to understand the forces going through limbs and limb speeds and how that differs. So for me, I've refined it even more, whittled it down. Um, and I still do all those phases. It's just, when do I put them in? And I think what I've realized is ISOs are really powerful. How did that fit into your training throughout the year? Are you, and I guess this kind of goes back to like the structure of your staff and the guys that you're working with, but I know that you worked with like a lot of return to play cases. So were mm -hmm. you work, working with those return to play situations with the Beast Factory? Or did you also have the ability to implement some of these principles, um, either sections and portions of the Beast Factory or all of it um, with yeah. the, the whole roster or portions of the roster other than return to play guys so it's yeah it started with return to play guys and so like that's where it all like was the epicenter um myself and uh, my boss and buddy morris and then like our med staff are all working together to get these guys through the return to play continuum so they can be lumped back into playing playing their sport at a high level and be integrated back into the team um so it's essentially what you just said i just start with two blocks and that's ISOs and eccentrics. Now eccentrics are really slow. So that's the EQI. Um, and what I'm realizing is why I mentioned earlier that these guys are master compensators is these guys need to be held to constraints. You need to add guardrails. And I think every human needs this. Um, doesn't matter if it's Joe Schmo, you know, 
Nevada high school all the way up to do it in the NFL. Like we need to add constraints to environments early on because that's going to achieve better outcomes as you start adding less constraints, adding more degrees of freedom. So more joint actions to achieve a task. How, what was the reception so, for guys to the first time you told them to do a 40 second EQI on like a lower body movement? Cause that sucks. Was, Especially like nuts, a, but, a bigger <laughs> movement. Like if I do, I've done like 40 second roof at elevated split squats. Those are yeah. brutal. So like taking a professional athlete and I'm not lumping all professional athletes as, as divas, but I mean, there's going to be guys that have done things a certain way in their way and want to continue to do it their way. So whenever you said, Hey, do this movement and lower super slow for 40 seconds, were they about it or what was that reception like? And also in addition to that, I'm sure like the Cardinals had previous plans they would use previous ideas they would use in RTP settings that were potentially different. So it's like, okay, not only I got to introduce this to the players, but I also have to introduce this to the staff and like the athletic trainers and I have to get everybody on board to now start to implement this stuff. Yeah, I think early on, I kind of just observed and then I kind of interject a little bit. And I think the beauty of our environment is it's a pretty big growth mindset community um, inside our walls, which is great. And so we're always trying to learn, trying to get better. Um, there's very low egos. And so I think that has led to this growth. Um, I think where this kind of took fire is at the end of the day, you have condensed timeframes, you have high stakes. And so you got to get guys back in a certain manner to do their sport. And so that was happening repeatedly, um, which can't really add too many more details outside of that. But uh, I think at the end of the day, people look at you nuts, you explain it to them. Then they see it. The athletes feel a certain way. Their joints are feeling better. And then it starts, you know, kind of take on a world of itself. I think, going back to Hunter's question, at first their eyes got about as big as softballs when I said 40 second lower. They're like, uh, what? So I think once you educate them and understand and tell them like why they're doing it and how they start to feel, I'm not just taking a back seat. I'm just the guy adding these guardrails that the car is like bouncing between. That's all it's really doing. So we don't hang out there very long, but I think it's very powerful. ISOs and EQI is very powerful for these athletes, um, especially EQI because you're peeling through layers of range of motion and getting huge impulses in the muscle along that degree of motion you're going through. And so we know that athletes are stronger up top than they are on the bottom, extension and flexion. We know that. So if we can get them stronger in flexion, it's going to make the extension better. And so that's kind of the methodology behind it. And so we'll do things top and bottom and lower through that thing. Uh, yeah, it, we'll see some interesting things, but they love it. It's a challenge. You kind of touched on it a little bit in terms of just the injury rates in the NFL. And I know this is a question that we had way down, but I think that it'd be interesting to kind of inject it right here. Um, and we talked about early, earlier in our first episode, we talked about a lot about your uh, return to play with your Achilles guys at UW. And obviously this year, there's been a specific focus on the incidence of Achilles injuries in the NFL. Can you just talk about it? Maybe the, maybe the answer is what you just said, right? Output driven, we're all we really thinking about super strong dudes playing a very high fast sport, right? But can you just talk about why in injury levels you think are so high right now, especially in the Achilles? Uh, what we're doing training wise to potentially mitigate it? And if this is if this is a trend that is going to continue or if this is like, a, hey, this is just a one-off 
these should come back down to to averages. Yeah, I think this goes back to my statement earlier, understanding tissue mechanics. And I think what's happened for the positive is we've the pendulum swings, right? We were doing a lot of heavy, slow movements for a long, long time. That went from machines to barbells to free weights. Well, now the pendulum has swung really far. Everybody needs to be Usain Bolt and sprinting. There is a happy medium between these two. In a sense, those are two polar opposites. Those are the end, the end points we got to go to, but we need everything in between. And that's kind of like the beauty of, you know, the framework of the Beast Factory is like you're actually moving through that gray area, which is really important. So ISO's number one is you're adding a constraint to attack the tendons, to make the tendon, you know, a little bit stiffer. Yeah, you're going to get to stretch, but it's going to be stiffer with heavier load. So it's going to take um, a different weight or a heavier weight to pull on that tendon as you start to train that guy. And then you go into eccentrics, which then is both, you know, the muscle and the tendon. And then you go into fast, that's the tendon moving a bunch. And then you go into plyometrics or sprinting, which is even, you know, the stiffest, stiffest of the stiffest tendons. Um, and so I, th I think we need all these components so to answer your question, Mike, I don't really know me being a simplistic mind from that end. I think it's just, we have hit two ends and we really still don't know that much about tendons, ligaments and soft tissue, how they all work together and how we can actually make change in those areas, kind of like we would with a muscle. And so we're just changing the stress strain, you know, continuum a little bit here of the cycle with adding certain components. That's ISOs, that's EQIs, that's eccentrics. But I think ISOs are, are still so important. And I think that's where like Keith Barr's done a great job. Michael Kerr out of, you know, I think Holland or Denmark where he's at, like he's done a great job. Like we still don't know enough. And I think tensile load, we need to understand a bit better as strength coaches. Whenever you're just talking about that continuum of the beast factory and talking about the power of, of moving slow when it comes to sport, especially a sport like football, it's nonstop dynamic movement. It's fast eccentrics. If you were to implement this with a, with a healthy individual, or maybe you have, are you probably in season with a guy that's playing everyday practice and, and every Sunday just going to focus on those first two components because they're the other end of the spectrum from what they're not getting in their sport because they're probably filling that bucket of dynamic movement. So you're probably not, and I don't want to like speak for the beast factory, but this is kind of like my assumption of thinking about it and understanding it a little bit more. You're probably not going to just have them do all four of those components. You might hit them with the ISOs and EQIs because you know those other two buckets are getting filled or would you still do it um, in its totality? Great question. My methodology is very similar to how you'd normally program. So let's just take three days, right? They get they get done. Let's take, talk hypotheticals here. They get done playing on a Sunday. Monday, they're in the facility. Well, we know they just went through a ton of forces and damage, right? Their soft tissue is probably pretty sore. So you're going through an inflammatory process to repair that. So what fits there? That's ISOs. No movement in the joint. You're going after the tendon and the soft tissue. You're getting a ton of electrical impulse from the brain down to the muscle to fire that thing. It's loaded BFR essentially is what it is. You're getting fluid to get squeezed out during contraction. You release the contraction. You have a bunch of fluid rushing back in. And so, yeah, you have stiffness after a game, but that's going to help with range of motion. That's going to help with keeping guys strong neuromuscularly. That's going to peel through layers of, if you want to call it stress shielding, to make sure the fibers are stronger that were weak at one point. 
And so it's like a global approach. Do extension flexion in a joint, hold that thing for time, for 30 seconds with load. Cool, move on. Day two that they're in, that's now adding an ISO and eccentrics. Now you're getting movement. And that's where you're overloading the eccentrics now if you want to, or you're doing submax, or you're doing EQIs. So you're taking the ISOs and you're adding eccentrics to it on day two. And then the last day, depending on when it is in the week, you're moving down the continuum again. And so you have ISOs, eccentrics, now fast eccentrics. If you're going to add dynamic, you can, but you're still now moving away from those heavy slows and getting into an area that they're going to need on game days repeatedly. And so I think another question you have on those is what would something I say that probably go against conventional wisdom is a lot of the times run of the, the notion don't do eccentrics or fast eccentrics or dynamic movement in season because they're getting that on the court or on the pitch or on the field. Well, are they really? We need to look at actual objective measures here and that's where like GPS, accelerometry data can help. Is there max capacity going down? And if so, why not try and have like a, an approach in the weight room that's gonna get them closer to the field so they don't have that decaying factor. It's gonna take me longer to decelerate now. So more time to decelerate. So now the actual like magnitude and the rate have gone down. The only thing that I think is is interesting to to think about and what you just kind of laid out in that hypothetical situation is the beast factory can be structured together within one day of all four components, or you can separate those four components within a week and treat it in the same way that you just talked about that situation, which I think is really powerful and, and yeah, kind of how I began to think about structuring my in-season weeks, training my guys too. Yeah, I think we're too binary, right? Like it's either like, let's do all of it or let's do none of it. Yeah, And we yeah. have to, as coaches, kind of pick and choose, like what are the game demands are going through and how can I keep training these guys at a high level to keep their nervous system firing, but also to their soft tissue. So the ECM, the tendons, the muscles, all working together to pull on bones, like bones don't move. We move those because of what's happening from the brain to the muscle. And so for me, I err on the side of ISOs and slow movement. Why? You're not going to get sore but it has the highest return on investment in the weight room. Yeah. Oh, it does stuff. It does make me think about, because um, we're about to get into our, so we start our our season like two weeks, baseball season two weeks. And I know I'm not supposed to timestamp us, Hunter, on these podcasts because we're not exactly <laughs> sure what days we're going to release them. So if I say like today, who knows what today is? Anyway, well, it's timestamped. So. It's timestamped now, so <laughs> none of me do but. Uh, so we start our, our our season pretty soon, but we get into like the starting pitcher routines this week. And um, there's, as I've come to find out, many different philosophies about how starting pitchers should go through their week in terms of physical preparation. But like you could apply this, this model pretty similarly if you wanted to. It's like, hey, you have your start day, you know, day, you know, get day after, two days after, three days after, whatever. And you can just go from essentially those ISOs to those EQIs all the way through until now we're dynamic going into the start, you know, five, six days later. So no, very applicable to not only football. Yeah, I think I look at like throwing athletes. I look at people that are, you know, ballistic in nature and they release something, but they never hold on to something, right? Like me doing a fast move where I'm not letting go is going to change the mechanics of my arm. Um, and so I think this is where it fits really perfectly is – Kind of what you're saying, Mike, is like early on, like let's just start doing a lot more decel work so it's going to prepare their tissue for when they actually go and do it with a baseball 
and they're releasing that baseball, they're not going to be as sore. And so that's kind of like why this has become important for me is I see this now and I'm like, whoa, okay, like let's use the beast factory because we know these guys are going to either excel, decel, or sprint here in a little bit. Let's build the tissue resiliency in the weight room. Well, that's where the fast eccentrics and dynamics in the weight room are getting closer to their relevant on-field work. That's when the mismatch happens where people get really sore or have injuries is when there's a mismatch in the weight room and on-field. And if they're not prepared for that and the tissue's not prepared for it, yeah, it's going to blow apart. Roll with that component. Yeah, sure. So um, diving into some deceleration, and, and, and we want to talk about this a little bit on our last episode, but I feel like we just it was just a good episode in terms of just like beast factory stuff, but definitely we want to include it in this one. So can you just talk about a little bit in terms of how you go about, this is a broad question, how you go about training deceleration, the value of it, especially because the other linear parts of speed development are way more emphasized um, for just about everybody. So how do you go about it and just the importance of it in general? And then maybe um, that that's the first part. And then maybe the second part is what are some of the protocols you go through for deceleration? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Let me think about this. I think deceleration is really hard to quantify compared to max V and Excel, right? And I think we never really understood it until Damien Harper started like blasting it everywhere, right? And I, so looking at the traits and kind of what was really easy for me to understand was, okay, I just started looking at GPS data, even going back to UW time. I looked at GPS data and when somebody goes from a dead stop to a max velocity run to then slamming on the brakes, that curve is very interesting to me because it starts very slow and then it just stops, right? That stopping point is you decelerating. And that's your ability to throw on the brakes. There's a huge time constraint. There are huge amounts of forces. And so the way I look at it is the rate and the magnitude of force has gone way up, way higher than anything. And so as long as we can understand that, that makes programming anywhere really easy. And so the way that I program, the way I look at things is probably more mechanical than anything is like, okay, when I run, I accelerate, my foot's on the ground for anywhere from 300 to 200 milliseconds, right? Early phases. When I start getting to max V, you know, I don't know, hypothetical 80 milliseconds, right? I throw on the brakes, you go from your peak speed to your decel, freaking fast, really fast. You're like falling off a cliff. And so now your foot contact time, yeah, it might start to be a little bit longer, but the forces through those limbs, through the soft tissue, through your postures are changing everything. So that's how I look at it. I think decel doesn't always mean doing just jumping off boxes or having light loads in the weight room. That also means having a heavy split squat. And that's where Damian Harper's done a good job with looking at 60 degrees per second versus, you know, I think it's 180 or 240. So really light load, really high limb speeds versus heavier loads, slower limb speeds. Those go together in decel. So decel is a combination of like both those together. Um, decel is going to break apart an athlete. It's going to find the weakest link. So you got to make sure your tissue is ready for it. So posture and time is kind of the way I look at decel. And then that makes my program really easily because I just walk through those four phases again of the beast factory. And so like going from EQIs, then I'll go to five second lowers and you're getting heavier loads at super max where they're pulling themselves out of the hole, like a hat filled version. And so I'm just trying to build a resiliency in the tissue, but also the brain, the brain's got a model what's going on. So when I go into a, a movement that has, you know, a giant time constraint, I can still achieve that without a hip strategy and more of like a quad strategy. All right. So this is a question I have, and this is 
not part of our questions, but something I've been thinking about or something I just thought about when you when you mentioned that. So whenever you talk about decel, you continue here and you even set yourself like very high forces. But then when you look at something like a heavy, slow split squat, it's not producing very high forces in the ground reaction sense. Yep. So where, where is the direct correlation to deceleration in a movement that does not even touch the forces that you're going to touch in a max decel out on the field or court? So what you're trying to do, it's a great question, is this kind of goes back to our like output measures. You jump on force plates, you see it, you know, I jump 41 centimeters, I land on the force plate. That's like anywhere from eight to 10 times body weight, right? Like, that's great. Um, we don't know the internal forces. So intramuscular forces, internal forces now, very different. And how those muscles are actually like working to attenuate my foot hitting the ground to stop momentum. So my body weight times velocity. And so that's where heavy loads in a split squat is attacking that point. So that's Damien Harper's work where he actually shown you know, leg extensor, um, I think it's torque at 60 degrees per second, which is really slow. That's like a heavy, slow split squat correlates with decel, but also so does fast limb speeds. Well, that's when the foot's off the ground to come back through to stop. So we need the heavy slow for actual like capacity of decel. I need the heavy stuff for actually impulse. So it's almost like looking at it from a like a local tissue perspective and then yep. some of That's the great. higher higher force stuff would be more <clears throat> of like the global systematic yeah. perspective potentially that's the byproduct is you know like if i can't decel well i'm probably going to do it in 10 yards not five yeah i need more time to smack the ground with my feet to build up the forces my impulse is going to be longer as opposed to peaks we want those peaks so it's like bang 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 push out of it bang, 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 push out of it, as opposed to like, bang, 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 push out of it, you know? So that's where I think these are great questions. And I think the internal workings of muscles and tendons that attach to bones is really good to understand, but also postures. You have hip strategies, you have quad strategies. And knowing when someone decels, what strategy they're using and why, that's gonna lead us down a path of why we need to add constraints. We need to be more upright to decel, to be almost like, I wouldn't say a split squat, but be more upright to load the quad. So when people talk about training, sorry, Mike, do you have something directly on that? No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, me and you send each other like videos back and forth on IG sometimes, and I'm not going to say what videos, but uh, of people training, and I'm going to put in quotations, deceleration. And it's typically, you see it with med balls and doing different lunge variations. And it's it's like, is that training deceleration are we touching the forces are we touching the the oh. tissue mechanics that are required for max decelerations that you see on a field or court now with that being said do you just attack this bucket of, of building better decelerators with the stuff in the weight room with those heavy split squats and different things like that or are you also structuring constraints within a drill setting or on the field or court two to elicit some of these things 
Um, how do you how do you bridge that? And do you think that it needs to be bridged, or can you accomplish a lot of those things within the weight room? The weight room builds the tissue resiliency, whether it's slow to fast, to get us closer to the court. We're never going to get past the court or the field in the weight room. We're going to get pretty close, and that's what we want. And that's either using resistance or assistance. Assistance is yanking me into something. So it's mm -hmm. higher entry velocities now, which is now going to spike my momentum, which is going to spike my braking forces. And so my braking force impulse is going to go through the roof now, which we need. And it's going to get me closer to the capacity on the cord so they can actually achieve that decel faster. So what you're just trying to do is understand how can I use the weight room to get them closer to the field to achieve their sport or their task better with more efficiency without energy leaks, which energy leaks in my opinion is just like tissue that we can't use very well or activate. And so we're overloading tissue that we probably shouldn't overload. Um, and I think the constraint com component now is when you look at somebody decel, you're going to see different strategies at play here and you're going to see a hip decel. You're going to see a quad decel, which one looks like an RDO, one looks like a split squat. And why are they doing that? And what are the implications and ramifications that's going through that tissue? We're overloading hamstrings potentially or overloading quads. What do we want? And I think I'll leave that to the coaches to decide that, but I think we need to add more tools to the athlete toolbox. That's AKA variability, right? And so we need to add variability they can achieve because when they get thrown to the wild, they're going to have all kinds of stuff going on. They just got to react. So if you were back in the college setting and you were structuring your, however football does it, your Monday acceleration day and whatever, max strength, and then Tuesday your max velocity day, and what, would you have a day that's your deceleration focus? And if, it, if you did, what would your field work look like on that day? Yeah, there's – Big components there you need to make sure you're actually hitting because there's decel on everything doesn't matter what sport you're playing so i just need to make sure that they're prepared for it so i'd make sure in the weight room that we are doing fast eccentrics and or plyometrics that are biasing an eccentric version on field is going to mimic that so whatever i'm doing in the weight room the field's going to mimic that so if it's high speed stuff on the field there's got to be high stuff in the weight room too right but there's going to be a continuum there. We're building tissue resiliency through the heavy slows, the ISOs and stuff like that, that they can achieve postures. So the heavy slow and the no slow or no movement, that's to make sure they can achieve a posture. Time is endless, achieve a posture. Cool. Then they're going to go and do some fast eccentrics. So if I was to go back to college football, I would have a day solely they're going through um, deceleration. So that's actually adding constraints through cone drills. When you go up and cut, you have to make the cut this way in a certain space to go a certain direction. And if you aren't doing that, you just need to make sure you're coaching guys up. So use cones, use different cuts, 45, 90, 135, 80. It's going to be pretty basic, to be honest with you. It's like how I program return to play. Yeah. So it's going to be me yanking people into stuff. So add bands, get a partner in a band, put a band around your waist. Cool. It's yanking me into a D cell, smack the brakes. Can they do that? Yes or no. The certain posture we want. If not, why? That goes back to the weight room because what they're going to do on the field should mimic what they're doing in the weight room. On field, the time constraint is so high now with D-cell, they're just going to go back to their old strategy that they're used to. So the weight room is where you cram the postural stuff with time, where I'm having you hold some for 30 seconds, 
or you're lowering through 40 seconds that they can feel. Because if you can feel something, you're going to build a model in your brain of how to do it. I go to the field. Now they're doing it very easily. Yeah, and it's, it's not... It's not like these individuals are trying to decelerate inefficiently. It's probably they just don't have the capacity to do it. So in the weight room with yeah. the things that you're trying to do, you're just trying to build that capacity because yep. then you go out and have them do a task and they're probably going to do it a little bit more efficient, efficiently and effectively because you built the capacity to do it. Correct? Correct. So we're always trying to push the capacities up. That's yep. how I program. Keep pushing capacities, keep pushing capacities. Volume comes through practice. Volume comes through other stuff. Yeah. But we do know that... You know, the magnitude and the rate of that is what's going to kill these guys. Not really the volume. The volume will be like the last layer. If you are, if you're weak and you have a lot of volume, yeah, regardless, you're going to fall apart. Yeah. So a couple of things, one, one statement, one question statement is in thinking about how we've talked about polarity so far, and we went from super slow, heavy stuff, as we talked about with injuries to everything's dynamic, everything's fast. And we haven't spent much time in between. I feel like the exact same thing is, is for like deceleration and acceleration type work because you have not a lot of speed work happening, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And then now you have people who like, like Tony Holler, for example, who it's like, hey, 15 minutes, speed, 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 speed. If you're not feeling good, you're not sprinting, but like sprint every single day. And there's like this, I think, feel like shift or just linear speed, linear, linear speed without this thought of deceleration. So I do think that we talk about polarities just everywhere. And it's just more attractive to talk about or like on the up, uh, opposite end where it's like people are like, hey, all you need to do is drop from a super high box. If you drop from a super high box, like you're good to go. Like there is no need to sprint fast or lift heavy weights. Like it is the catch-all. So the polarity is is everywhere in our field. The question I have is a super specific question. And it is a 1080 related question. I've played around with assisted decel on the 1080. And I've never really come up with like a standard protocol of, hey, this is how much assistance I want to give someone into a decel because obviously you can quantify it pretty easily on a 1080. How do you figure out how much assistance is too much? How much assistance is too little? Is it just when the strategy of decel changes where it's like, okay, now we're at a point in time where we're probably pretty right there, which is then individualized for every single person. Um, or is there a more specific kind of protocol that you have? I'm probably the worst person to ask regarding protocols. I just have guardrails I set up. I'm like, well, we're going to see if they can do this. And a lot of times I'm outside those guardrails because of what the athlete's showing me. That's why. So I'm always trying to make sure I'm challenging the athlete to achieve the task the way I want it. If he's doing that, keep adding some sort of stressor. And that's assistance. Like you're talking about, Mike, I think it's a great question. So like what I'll do is thinking long-term is like, I'll have them scoot back out of the way from the 1080 and do just more static stuff. Right. Like, where it's yanking them into a, a D cell, like a split squat, they're pushing back out of it, yanking them into it, pushing back out of it. So they're just stationary. And then you add the movement of them like walking into it where it's like, it's pulling them and they're actually having to like smack the brakes. And then you can add in like, it's actually pulling them to do a 505 essentially. So it goes back to just like posture. And in your opinion, what should that look like? And I think a lot of the people have the notion that change of directions happens only in like one plane which there was like, it's happening in the funnel plane. Well, unfortunately, the first step of D cells in the sagittal plane. I've used it a couple of times. Like I've used 1080 and D cells with some athletes, typically in like a return to play setting, but yeah, you know, like some, some athletes is like, Hey, four kilogram pull. And they go from like this, what looked like a good D cell five kilogram pull. They're just like sitting back against the resistance. Now as they're coming to their stop, it's like, Oh, yeah. all right. Well, clearly things are changing. Or it's like, I have an athlete who's like, 
10 kilograms looks the same, 12 looks the same, 15, like it yeah. looks the same. It's like, oh, yeah. we're all over the place here, right? Whereas like, oh, I guess it's all individualized, but like over speed is like, okay, I know I'm going to get you to X percentage above your speed, whatever. So it's like, okay, I'm just going to get you to the subjective measurement of where it looks like your strategy starts to change as opposed to anything really objectively speaking. Well, isn't that like finding their capacity in the situation you gave of the individual that you're pulling with four kilograms and then you go to five and they look like shit, but the other, yeah, and I guess because go... part of it is, is, no, I guess part of it is like the lack of, lack <laughs> of objective data on deceleration, right? Cause I know, like, I know someone's max velocity, therefore I'm going to pull them at X percentage over their max velocity. I don't necessarily know what someone's max decel is. Therefore I can't pull them at a percentage of max decel, right? I just have to like see what their subjective changes. That's where that's a really good question. I'm not usually using the overspeed decel mechanisms of a 1080 to, to like test somebody. It's more or less like it's a training tool in my opinion. Yeah. And I'm just trying to jack this thing up to make sure they can tolerate forces. Uh, and if they can't, like you'll see it pretty easily, like their strategy changes, like you just mentioned. And so that's where in the weight room, it's super important that they're going to still, before you start doing that, they got to achieve those tasks in a weight room setting where they can feel things. They can achieve joint positions. They can achieve postures where it's going to be a very conscious movement and you're coaching them where they're, or your assistant's coaching them, but they need to achieve that first before you start stacking these other things. And I'm not saying like it's going to take forever. It's not, they'll figure it out pretty quick. Just a quick pause in the podcast. Talk about our sponsor, Protein 2.0. Protein 2.0 is the ultimate protein sports drink. It is packed with 20 grams of whey protein isolate and electrolytes. Protein 2.0 is your go-to solution for quick muscle recovery and hydration. It is available in a variety of fruit flavors like orange mango and strawberry watermelon. I probably have at least one a day here at Illinois State. Give your athletes something better for you and better tasting after their next workout. Head over to drinkprotein2o.com slash needle for an exclusive offer. Just fill out your information and a rep will shoot you an email with a first time purchase offer. That's drink protein and then literally or put the number two, right? Drink protein two, the letter O.com forward slash needle. Power your athletes with protein two O. Now Mike just touched on not having the ability in his setting to like track what their max deceleration is. With your guys's, you guys use catapult. I'm assuming because you just went to the catapult. Yeah. So they those track max accelerations and max decelerations, correct? Yeah. So like last year with the Kings, we had Connexon, um, and it was like the fancy version of Connexon, and it would give you max acceleration and max deceleration numbers. And what was really cool about working in that space is you had you had access to the entire NBA's data, so you could look at that. Well, the Kings were playing, so I guess that's not a good example. You could look at that Celtics 76ers game that happened yesterday and be like, what was Tyrese Maxey's max deceleration in that game? So you just had this huge sample size of XLs and D-cells. Um, and what we began to try to do and what my boss, Corey Kennedy, tried to do and is still working on and developing this model is kind of like finding guys' max accelerations, decelerations, creating archetypes within that. Um, within our own in-house kind of studies, looking at correlations between force plate numbers and those and those max X cells and D cells. So all that to be said, are you looking at those numbers because you have an objective way to measure XL, max X cells and D cells? And if so, what are you 
doing with those those numbers yeah you're just using an objective measure to understand like these guys capacities and what are they what are they able to do we unfortunately like there's a lot of other gray area you're just looking at a number that you don't know how is it achieved but also too just kind of like a minor footnote is the catapults between their shoulder blades so that's like whole body deceleration it's not looking at it from a you know a center of mass on my hip um so i think strategies at play there could probably give you a false reading in a sense if i'm a hip guy i'm going to whip down in the decel right and so you're getting like a higher decel probably from the trunk however it's as a coach and performance coach it's giving us an understanding of what that athlete can tolerate or do and if you have an athlete that keeps getting hurt we know that maybe these forces are tearing this dude apart for He's not able to tolerate it. So he's finding ways around things. And so that's where the weight room comes like really, that's where it's really important actually is early on in off seasons and even during seasons, making sure you're still touching on ISOs and EQIs or there's constraints. But I think from my perspective, it's to understand capacity by position, what they're able to tolerate. And I think looking at positionally, we just need to understand our excels or decels higher for that position. And me personally, like my opinion is like, we just need to drive those capacities up. And we do know that D cells are going to be the ones that tear people apart more than anything. Um, and so that's where the beast factory is always going to structure, you know, you're doing stuff yielding first, you're lowering first, the concentric stuff's going to come down the road. Yeah. So me and me and Henry Barrett at Alabama are kind of like working on a project, looking at max excels and D cells. And the question that I keep coming back to is if we're able to track and now football might be slightly different because like top speed is way more prevalent than in a game like basketball, but in a game like basketball, where it's like an acceleration and deceleration sport, and these guys aren't hitting top speed. And obviously there's a vertical, vertical component of jumping, but do you think that being able to track these in-game excels and decels and seeing guys capacities is a more robust and effective like KPI to kind of like, label guys or 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 quantify their physical capacities as opposed to like our kpis are the approach vertical jump and flying 10 sprint like do you think that that is just now we are able to look at capacities in game of objective numbers that like we're kind of already tracking but now it's like hey his max excel is a 4.5 and his d cell to whatever negative 5.2 like now we have objective numbers. Is that is that potentially like the best KPI that we could use in terms of of viewing athletes? Yeah, probably. You're just trying to understand like when the lights kick on, like what are these dudes doing? You know, yeah. like are they you know like twenty percent higher in game than they were in practice? Well, that's something to consider. And that's kind of what I mentioned earlier. Like if that's the case, and if our practice isn't getting close to that, how are we going to shrink that gap? And I think that's where the beast factory I was talking about is like, we need to make sure we're still doing fast eccentrics in a weight room and controlled environment setting. It doesn't need to be something that's vicious and like a ton of volume to make soreness go up. All you're trying to do is just make sure from a time component, these dudes can slam on the brakes and the forces in the weight room are very controlled. They're very safe. So it's a safe way to top guys off in my opinion for D so. Somewhat unrelated question. Uh, that I th I'm thinking about because we had Elijah on uh, recently and he was talking about how every off season he's had before this one, he's been hurt. 
in the offseason where he's had to have surgery immediately after the season was over. When you have guys who are in that in that kind of space where it's like, hey, they're just playing to get to the season, season's over, surgery, injuries they're dealing with. But now you might not have hands on them for the next however many months. What is the communication for them in terms of RTP? Or is it just I have to trust them, take care of their own stuff over the next however many months till I see them again next year? Yeah, RTP cases, like they can be in our facility where we're still like working with them. But once they're not RTP cases, they're off with their personal trainers or the performance coaches or whoever it might be. And all you're really trying to do is just educate them when they're in the walls. Hey, when you go and train with other people, like keep some certain things in mind. But at the end of the day, like you can't really control that. It's really up to the discretion of the athlete. They're going to go with who they trust. They're going to go with who they put their eggs in their basket with, um, which is not a negative thing. It's just, I think this is why you see injuries in the NFL because you have these performance coaches that they're all over the yard from a philosophy standpoint. Um, and I think that's really hard. And I think that goes back to my statement earlier, like tissue mechanics, right? If we can understand like eccentrics versus concentric from a velocity standpoint, but also from a force standpoint, I think we're going to be going down a good path. And so me, hypothetically speaking, if I was, you know, to be the university of Washington, or in the NFL, the first thing I would do early on when they come back into our facility is do ISOs and EQIs. You're now just filling that bucket to make sure they can be prepared for DSO. Everything else will be fine. We had a, like we have winter break, right? And then we get back from winter break and like the baseball season starts pretty soon after that. And so like, the coaching staff is super concerned about guys' arms because they have to be pitching. And there's one kid who goes to Florida and he pitches at a, at a, at a uh, facility in Florida and this facility is like a VLO facility. It's like they get guys throw really hard. And he was like sending videos to the coaching staff. And the coaching staff was like, you know, well, I'm not sure this is exactly the point of winter break to be throwing that hard at this point in time of the year because, you know, we have to be there where he's at right now in six weeks, not right now. Talk about teaching mechanics. Yeah. And yeah. he missed his first uh, bullpen coming back from winter break because his shoulder was too sore. But like you think about the facilities, like they get college pitchers to come back during winter break. So of course they're going to yeah. rip them and have them, yeah. you know, really throw hard because that is attractive. To hit on that hundred before you go. No, is like, no, 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 go ahead. I think one thing that we just need to keep in mind is if you dose a super maxi centric one time, that's greater than their one RM that could have a residual for six months. So like, why I'm saying this is because I think people always think eccentrics are always going to be super max. No, they're not going to be super max 24 seven. However, they have a great, great residual that we need to pay attention to. And so like, whether it's baseball, which is the distal end point, the hand throwing the ball, the shoulder gets really sore. Can you accommodate that actual follow through and slow down that limb speed without falling apart? I don't know. That's for like doing some heavy lowers with baseball pitchers might be great. So I wanted to circle back and ask one more question about the the X cells and D cells and and seeing those numbers in season. One thing you mentioned earlier was if you're seeing a trend uh, of let's say max D cells decline in season, there might be intervention. Did I like pull that out of nothing, or do you remember saying that? No, I would definitely look at that for sure. Yeah. So are you kind of using like? 
potentially decels or excels also as kind of like a, a readiness monitoring tool. In terms yeah, I think of, you got to keep tabs on it. <clears throat> I think because if you're having now this, the in-season models are a little different because a lot of times they're sub-max, but if there's a point in time that they're exerting, you know, in your mind, 100%, their RPE is like freaking 100 like, yeah, you should probably look and see what are those capacities that they're able to achieve in season. That's your readiness model now. So that's where I think technology, like a lot of people start like trying to test too much. If we don't even have the right process to start with, so the principles, the methods are going to be screwed up. And so that's where like keep tabs on guys. Yeah, like keep looking at like their excels, their decels. I don't know if you guys get like change of direction, accumulation. Like that's really important because that's going to deteriorate the tissue. And so if they're not hitting, you know, within like 10% of where they used to be, like ask questions, why is it because they're subconsciously slowing down now? Because athletes all know if I'm not feeling a certain way, what am I going to do? Dial goes down. They're not going to tell anybody. They're just going to dial it down because they know these dudes are smart. These girls are smart. Like how they feel is like really important. And that's where I think when as a Washington surveys were, Still important. I know Hunter, you're probably part of that process where you had to go walk around with an iPad, but you're still interacting with people and then you're actually getting the capacities from objective measures, catapult, connection, whatever it might be. But I think D cells keep an eye on. And you yeah. can create a ratio if you want, like Excel, D cell, like max, and kind of see like what's happening to that ratio. Is it going down because Excels are staying the same and D cells are dropping? Well, we got to train that then to make sure they can slam on the brakes. Yeah, I just think that this Excel D cell piece is if you're able to track it in game and again i'm thinking from a basketball lens because that's the sport i work with can be so powerful as i mentioned earlier as like a kpi but also like a readiness monitoring tool because people always talk about like force plates and what metrics do you look out on your plates to like monitor fatigue well a lot of times not a lot of times sometimes guys get on the plates and they just don't care it's like if we so i jump the guys like the day before a game after practice and if they just sucked in the last two drills they walk over to the plates and that like give a shit factor is down just a little bit and then if i look at my whatever eccentric duration maybe that eccentric duration sucks because they just didn't they were in their head about the last two drills but i think that if you're able to follow trends within the actual game there's like less variables yeah. involved because it's just them playing their sport so I, I just think there's a lot of value to tracking these excels decels the the magnitude and also like the capacity of them i think is is really interesting it's kind of my new uh rabbit hole that i'm in right now but uh mike do you have anything else on that uh not on that i have a i also only have about four minutes and i have to leave but you guys will probably finish up without me which is fine i do have a question that's completely out of left field um but i'm wondering what your take is and you know what if it's a terrible question terrible answer then we'll just cut it from the podcast but i am interested anyway what is the role or potential role of of AI in the sports science performance world, in your opinion, Kyle? When you say AI, AI, what do you mean? Like machine learning? Like Altus is putting out a lot of stuff recently about using um, like AI to quickly dissect like kinetics and kin or kinematics of like sprint profile right. profiling, yeah. which like seems super cool. Is there some kind of application in the football performance world of something in that AI realm? talking about his motion IQ, right? Yeah, yeah. Where they set up a camera and then they can get the actual kinematics of a run. Um, yeah. I think we're going down that path. I think we also need to understand the 
error rates of these things. And I'm not saying motion IQ has a high error rate. I'm not saying that at all. We just need to understand like, what are we truly looking at from a data perspective? And I think we can't just be naive and think all data is great data. I think we need to probably ask a better question. Like, why are we using motion IQ? What are we after? And so what are we trying to uncover more or less? So prime example, Mike, like if you have used motion IQ and say, okay, their ground contact time in a flying 10 is bad in your opinion and their angular velocity, their flying angular velocity is bad in your opinion, what are you going to do? And I think a lot of people will sit there and be like, I don't know. I just got data though. What do I do with it? I don't know. So I think there needs to be probably a question on the back end is like, are you prepared to have a course of action when you see this? And if so, what would it look like? And I think there's still some things going on. And I know Jonas does a good job with what he does. And so does Stu and those guys. I think everyone's trying to do that in a, a really good manner. I just think we need to understand like, what are we looking at? Most people are probably more inclined to want to collect more data than understand what data yes. means or Bingo. use technology as opposed to fit problems are their technology is actually using. But right. use it as a problem solver if you want. Like you have a hypothesis, you go in, you run an athlete, I put him through a block of resisted running super heavy and med ball throws. I don't know. And you run them and you're like, whoa, you did it pre and post. And you're like, that sucked. Like they got worse. Cool. Well, don't do that anymore. Then like that's, that's your screen, right? Like I think. We need to use, I think, tech to be almost like a, a thermometer. Like, what's going on? All right. So we'll finish on these these last two. Um, and I always think it's interesting to talk to individuals that are in a new space because I think that not that you don't learn yearly if you're in the same exact space, but I think that you go to a new setting, especially in a setting that you haven't worked before. And there's a lot of things that's new, whether it's the athletes you work with, the the staff you're working with and under what are a couple things that you learned this year that you weren't necessarily exposed to in the other spaces that you worked in? Whether it's whether it's a training piece, whether it's a relationship piece, or understanding how front office interact, like anything working in this new professional setting. I think the term dynamic system comes to, to mind. Like this at this level. You have dynamic systems in a sense. You have front office that are making like personnel decisions. And then you have like performance and you have coaches and it's like, we're all together. And it's like, we need to understand like all of these pieces. And so I think the younger me, I was like, ah, I'm strength coach, dude. Like, what do you mean? I don't need to know that stuff. I think at the end of the day, when I went through Strive as a wearable tech company and learned the business acumen that those guys were going through and like trying to get a startup going, it's really relevant to the NFL. Every NFL team is, they're, essentially a startup company, it's their own entity. And so I think just me seeing holistically, like how all these pieces kind of fit together and how we support them. And we're just one giant family, essentially. And I think I really feel that more here in the NFL than I felt in college. College, it's like, ah, the weight room guy, you're just whatever, you know? Um, whereas here, it's like, we're all like together, striving for win after win after win after win and i think being at this level i've realized getting a win in the nfl it's freaking hard man oh not to mention we have 17 weeks of it oh cool like that's hard that's yeah. really hard college, yeah, that's i think these college guys like they fall apart or they hit these walls because you play 10 to 12 games you're done so that's something i realized last year was like 
as you just said, whenever you're in the collegiate setting, like things are pretty siloed. I'm not now. I think that here, like our um, athletic director who oversees basketball is like very involved, great dude, like very helpful. And I think that that's unique to where I've been other places, but like even things just seem siloed in the collegiate setting. But then I think that it also helps like last year and probably your facility, everybody's under the same roof. So like you have front office people walking through the weight room, you have coaching staff in the nutrition area, you have whatever players everywhere, but you're all under the same roof as opposed to being spread out on a campus. And I think that everybody, as you just said, is after the one sole goal of winning a Super Bowl. And it's like, there's a lot more collaboration from the proximity, but also like just the, the cell uniform yeah. focus that you have mm -hmm. in the professional setting, um, which is cool. Yeah. Do you feel that, do you feel that that also now that, that we just spoke it, about it in a positive light, do you think that that also creates kind of like a, in some situations and you don't even have to speak to the Cardinals, this can be completely hypothetical, but do you think that like in some situations that could create like a, a too many cooks in the kitchen where there's a bunch of opinions flying in from different spaces of like, we want this guy to, I don't know, gain this much weight. We want this guy to gain this much weight. We need him to play here. And then the performance staff is like, well, we think this, like, do you think that there's a too many cooks in the kitchen situation that can happen from this high performance model that everybody talks about? Yeah, it could. And I think that's a great question. I think it could. I think that's what communication and management as in like managing people and truly understanding your people and making sure you're communicating across all lines, essentially, like don't assume. So I think maybe the younger me would probably assume people know this information. Like I might like give them something, but you know, like as I've gotten older, hypothetically, I've just seen different realms and don't assume people know things and don't assume everybody knows what you know. So don't hoard information. Like just make sure that there's relevant information out. So you don't have these silos. And that's where I think, you know, we've done a good job with that. Like our communication is great. So how do you, this is kind of a, a curveball, but I think it fits within the same realm. Whenever you're collecting information from the sports science piece or side of things, and you want to present that information to the coaching staff, but you don't necessarily want to assert your assumptions of what the data means, how do you go about like presenting that information to them? Do you just give them the data and then let them assume what they want from that data? Or do you kind of give your opinion of what that data could mean? I think you have to meet them at their level, not your level. So what I mean by that is like strength coaches are always like talking player load or reps or whatever it might be, right? Or force or jump height. Like we have to assume that our coaches don't know that. So we have to talk in their lingo and meet them at their level, essentially. And that's not talking down to them at all. It's just making sure where there's a common ground where we can get, you know, the same outcome, just maybe speaking a different language. And that's where the younger me, I didn't do a good job at that. Where now I'm seeing this at different levels and I'm like, whoa, okay, cool. Like communication semantics, I think are really big. And so like when we say a word, like making sure people know what that means. Like if I use the word force, making sure people know what that means. Don't assume. Or if I use the word like a rep, okay, so 
speaking hypothetically, a rep, what does a rep look like? Is that a rep in the weight room, a rep on the field? Like we have to make sure we have like anchors to that. And I think coaches in general, they talk about reps on the field or snaps or shots in a game. So I think speaking their lingo and meeting them at their level is probably better. You can always upskill them um, along the way to help them understand, you know, maybe some more intricacies or understand things a little bit differently. And yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about because, and I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that there's so much power in learning how to communicate with coaches, because I think that as strength coaches, I think that obviously we handle the stuff in the weight room and, and the physical development of people and, and readiness and fatigue and all those things. Those are extremely important, but I just feel like, especially in season for me, I think that I can make a huge impact. And I think that, that performance coaches can make a huge impact with their ability to educate coaching staffs on like practice volumes and, and how travel affects things. And I think that the communication piece with, a coaching staff can go so much further than what we think. And I think that if you just like continue to sit in the weight room, train your guys and don't try to affect anything else, you're missing such a big piece of the pie. And I'm not to say that coaches, sport coaches don't understand those things because I think they understand them in their own way. But I think that there's also an educational piece that we can assist with, especially with some of the technology we're able to use like GPS. And I think that what you just said, putting it in the, language that they understand is so important, but there's not really like a textbook on that. You don't learn that in your exercise science degree. You don't, that's just like soft skills and, and interpersonal skills that you kind of develop. But I think it's, it's vitally important and something I'm realizing now of like, man, what is the most taxing thing on these guys Monday through Wednesday is practice. And if we get practice wrong and we blow these dudes up in practice, we're screwed. Like mm -hmm. if we blow these dudes up in practice, and we have to have a pretty tough travel day. Like our odds of winning, I obviously don't have an objective number, but I have to go down drastically. If we like strategically plan practice and we're smart about it and we make travel efficient and give these guys the right uh, food and, and nutrients along the way, like our chances of winning are probably so much higher. And that's probably a lot more, um, that's probably going to affect winning and losing, whether you do three sets in the weight room or four sets in the weight room on the Monday lift. Yeah, we can't assume the weight room is the driver. Like yeah. we're there to support their sport. We're there to support them playing on Saturdays, Sundays, or whatever it might be. I think where we go wrong sometimes in our own profession is we flip that over. And it's like, no, the weight room is more important. No, not at this level. And I'm now, if I was to go back to college, not even at that level. Like yeah. you can still develop guys, but you got to understand like their sport is their sport. And that's why they're there. They're not there to lift weights. Yeah. And one thing I've thought about that, and I've been thinking about this recently with, with tracking force plate numbers throughout the season, is like, am I seeing upward trends in guys' metrics that I'm looking at because of like this amazing training program that I've done for the last however many months we've been in season? Or is it just because of like the, the volume of on-court stress is going down in practice so guys are like kind of getting some resources back that have been stripped from that. You know, like, I think that it's very common. And shoot, I just posted a, a graph on, on Instagram the other day of like our jumps, but it was asking the question, like, are we responsible for upward trends or is it just the manipulation of stressors throughout the season? And like, 
a downward trend. And I think that I'm not going to say that there's no responsibility taken from the performance coach and the training you do. Cause if, if that was the case, then what is our job for? But I think that like a lot of those trends and changes you see is probably the manipulation of stressors outside of the weight room. Because as I said earlier, it's like the weight room is not the biggest stressor, especially the training that we're doing in season. Like it's, it's small doses, but the, the on-court volume these guys are experiencing is drastic and what happens in practice volume as you go throughout a season in most situations it goes down you start in training camp volume and intensity is super high and then it tr trends down throughout the season yeah. so like is that more responsible of these upward trends that you're seeing in like physical capacities of whatever tests you want to use as opposed to the training that you're doing and don't and i again the disclaimer of i think the training obviously has an effect but it's like it's probably not the biggest, the biggest effect. Yeah. And I think that goes back to my statement earlier where we have, we have too much time sometimes in college where we have to fill these buckets of time, but I think we're actually probably stripping them of their sport when we yeah. do that. Um, and so I think being now at this level, like I've fully seen that now where it's like, we don't need, we probably don't need to do as much, you know, volume or as much lifting like I would in college. And I think all you're really trying to do is stimulate their nervous system to power the muscles. Really all you're trying to do. And then anything else after that, like making sure the tissue is still like durable. In the professional setting, and I guess in every setting, people always talk about minimal effective dose. And it seems like in the collegiate setting, when you have so much time, you have to kind of decide what that minimal effective dose is because you have so much time. But in the professional setting, it's almost chosen for you because you have such finance yeah. do you agree with that and i like that setting because it's more challenging yeah you, you probably talk to a strength coach and they're like i love time why because i can train my guys well cool uh but here it's like yeah we play every sunday we play 17 weeks in a row we have to rinse and repeat every single week stakes are pretty high you're dealing with high level athletes like i like that challenge whereas i feel like college there's challenges but i i just they're different challenges. I don't know. Like I like these challenges right now. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so we'll, the last thing I wanted to ask was knowing you and understanding a little bit better how you're, how you operate. There's a new rabbit hole or something that that's interest or piqued your interest right now. And being in a new setting, maybe it's just continuing to digest how to operate within the NFL setting a little bit better or more efficiently or effectively. But what's like, what's the new or, um, or the, the topic that has kind of piqued your interest that you, that you're trying to find out more about? Well, one is kind of, I mentioned earlier, like reading more about just like motor learning and like motor programming, essentially, when you have athletes do certain things, like why are they doing things that you probably don't want them to do and just understand that better? And how do we get better results with maybe coaching cues or even using machines, maybe to restrict guys that they can't do things unless they use these muscles to propel that machine. Um, you asked me that 10 years ago, I'm like, oh, machines are stupid. So I think like just understanding probably better, like, training principles and what you can apply once you understand those principles better it's endless dude like you can do anything um so i think motor learning for me trying to understand that a lot better that's my rabbit hole and i think what i've started to go down now too is distal endpoints and proximal closer to the center of mass like 
how can we train guys to add more variability in the weight room? So not just doing only a few exercises that are achieving maybe extension, extension, or flexion, flexion, making sure we're getting flexion, extension, or extension, flexion in a joint, or better yet, we are holding it in ranges. So getting, you know, flexion, flexion, or extension, extension, and overloading that. And how is that going to be better for our athletes for joints? Um, that's more like a neuromechanical lens if you want to use like the IKN framework. So just learning more about adding variability and actually tools to these guys' toolbox to make them move better as opposed to just like mobility and stretching, right? Like we can do things in a weight room setting or on an on-field setting to get different outcomes. You can have one exercise and get numerous outcomes, but how do we engineer that to add guardrails to make them do certain things that they have to use certain joints or muscles? And I've started to think about that more and more because of all these injuries and why do injuries happen is because we're freezing joints. So once we get outside of that freezing joint or that variability, which is not a lot, and we add more variability that we aren't used to, and that tissue's not ready for those high demands, we start falling apart. So I've started to think about it more like, how can we make humans more durable? It's a general statement, um, without beating them up by just reps. Well, that's the beast factory. I know that, but um, it's, understanding eccentrics better i think we need to understand eccentrics way more they're way different it's a different contraction type it's different on the brain um i think the weight room could be endless to support what's on field on court that's great and i think that something that you began or have always kind of like talked about with me as being principle-based and i think that whenever you're you know, whenever you're truly principles bit principle-based it allows you to be kind of like the implementing different things like a machine because it's not like i'm method based where it's like we have to whatever catch hand cleans it's like no i'm after these certain principles and i'm going to use this laundry list of things to achieve those things and i think it also points to what you were talking about earlier was like you're chasing qualities and capacities not necessarily uh methods and exercises and it's like okay what can get me to those qualities yes. and capacities as opposed to just like i have to do this because this is what we've always done it's like i just want the quality and capacity i don't i don't care how i get there i just want to get to that quality and capacity yes yeah. bingo that's all we're doing is just chasing those right and someone asked me this a few days ago it's, you're just looking at it from like a biomechanical process that's incorporating the brain and nervous system as well and like you're looking at it from like almost just like a structure standpoint why is the structure falling apart or how do we increase these capacities to make the structure like stronger? That's like super fascinating to me. <clears throat> the last thing I'm going to touch on um, that you said that I think is kind of flips some things on their head, but this piece of time and how in some situations you can be allotted too much time and strip people of what they need. Because I think that a lot of, people in this field probably like, Oh, I need more time. Like I want to add more time. Like maybe we can add another day in season. We train every, but like, maybe that's just, maybe that's like detrimental to your athlete. Maybe they need less time, you know, like how much time do these guys really need to train to get what they're after? But I think that a lot of people think if I'm with them more, if I train them more then I can like hang my hat on doing my job better, but really it's like, man, maybe you're, maybe you're being more detrimental than you are being helpful. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Like we just, we love time and we love to manage things that way as a strength coach. Um, but I think the ultimate test for a strength coach would be, okay, Hunter, train your athlete your way. You want them to be trained. They leave you and they go and do something polar opposite. Can they even achieve that? And, or are they sore or did they get hurt? I think that's a great indication of how good a strength coach really is because what you're supposed to do as a strength coach or performance coach is make tissue resiliency better, increase force, increase variability in the joint or joints so they can achieve tasks. If they can't do those things without you there, are you doing your job? And that's sport. That's sport. That's hundred percent sport. Yeah. And so like, I think that's been really cool to like, you know, probably challenge things a little differently. Like, nah, let them get out of this facility and go and do their own thing. And can they do those things and at what capacity or rate? Is it better or worse? If it's worse, we're not doing our job. Yeah. No, it's powerful stuff. Thank you guys for listening to the episode. Find us on social media at MTN underscore perform. And another shout out to our episode sponsor, Lumen Sports. To find out more about Lumen or to download a free demo, head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes. See you guys next week.